Do we need more? Okay. We are continuing today in our study in the book of Isaiah. Throughout Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied of the impending destruction that was eventually going to be coming to the people of Judah. And as we've said before, as we look at Isaiah, you could take it in a number of different ways. You can take it as a, a very negative thing that he was telling them that eventually they would be taken captive, they would be prisoners in Babylon. But there was also a good side of it, too, that there was a time of deliverance that would come following their captivity. It wasn't the only time that things like this were prophesied. And each time that God's people were defeated, and sometimes their enemies, God did allow the enemies to, to take them captive and defeat them in battles, the neighboring enemies would ridicule them and they would scorn the God of Israel. But always, that scorn would eventually be turned back on those that mocked God's power when he judged the enemies of Israel and Judah. Keep in mind, when the enemies of, <clears throat> of Israel and Judah defeated them, it wasn't because their God was stronger than the Almighty God. It was because God allowed it to happen. God was still in power. God knew exactly what was going on. It wasn't like he was off that day and... He didn't show up to work, and so they went to battle and got beat. That's not what happened. Whenever the enemies of Israel defeated them, it was because God allowed it to happen. But there was always a plan for deliverance. At any time in the history of Israel that you saw that they were defeated or they were taken captive by an enemy, there was always a plan of deliverance or salvation for them. And it would only happen when the people were truly repentant And as a result, then they would be restored. So there was repentance and there was a restoration. And as we read today, keep in mind that Isaiah is talking to the people about events that were going to happen sometime probably between 150 and 200 years in the future. And they're captured by the Babylonians. He prophesied not only the duration of their captivity, he also prophesied exactly what their attitude would be when they were allowed to return back to their own country. He even named the king by name that was going to release them. And now Isaiah, in this portion that we're reading today, is telling them about the restoration that is in store for them. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. I want to go back for a moment and and put all the different people and all the countries and all the different players in this story in place. And I handed out a um, kind of a timeline. It's an approximate timeline, um, since they didn't... We don't know exactly on some of these things uh, in history exactly the date they happen, but these are approximate from the best I could pull from a bunch of different sources. Many years before, around 931 B.C., after the death of King Solomon, Israel split into two separate nations. There was a northern nation. It remained still as Israel. The capital was Samaria. The southern nation was called Judah, and the capital was Jerusalem. Both nations fell into sin and idol worship. It was around 
It was around 722 B.C. The northern portion... change anything okay so we go back to all the different place players and you can turn this down a little bit both both nations had fell, fallen into sin and idol worship and then around 722 BC Israel the northern portion was defeated by the Assyrians and they tried to take over Judah, but they were driven back. And then approximately 112 years later, in 612 B.C., the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians. And then about 18 years, about seven years later, in 605, Nebuchadnezzar becomes king of Babylon, and around 18 years later, they go and defeat Judah. Now, I said all that to say this. Israel and Judah that were divided at one time, one nation, then they divided the Assyrians took, the, took Israel captive. The Babylonians come and, t and take over the Assyrians. Then they take Judah. Now they're all in captivity together. So they're reunited, but they're reunited in captivity. So when Isaiah's speaking to the people at this point, since he's talking to the future and prophesying, he refers to them as one nation again, as Israel. So we'll see as we read, sometimes you see where they say Israel, and if you're not careful, you think, well, I thought he was talking to Judah. Well, he's talking to both nations because now they're reunited as one. So you have both Israel and Judah, both in captive in Babylon. The common denominator here is that God is still in control. That's the one thing that carries through this whole story. Regardless of the captivity, regardless of what happened, God was still in control. In chapter 60, this is where Isaiah is prophesying of things to come far into the future. Israel and, and Judah's captivity in Babylon has ended, and God has made a provision for them to return back to, to their homeland and rebuild their country, re, rebuild their city. And it's such an exciting thing to Isaiah that he proclaims, Arise, shine, or wake up. You've been, in, you've been in this lethargy and, and despair for so long because you've been in captivity in Babylon. But now it's a time to wake up and look what God has done. Look what God has prepared. Look what God has allowed to happen in your lives. And these passages serve as a multi-generational prophetic writing. I don't know if multi-generational is a word, but it was the only word I could come up with for that. Because it not only served for the people that he was talking to right then, it also served for Israel's future some 700 years down the road. And I believe it applies to us today. So you have three completely different scenarios that one prophecy was speaking to. 
it speaks to us today in the sense that God is still in control and He is still able to restore and to rebuild lives if we will only do like Israel and repent and turn back to Him. And that is the only requirement. Throughout history, throughout Israel's history, God was always there. He wasn't always pleased with their actions, but He was always there. Remember even in the time when, when God had delivered them from Israel, miraculously took them across the Red Sea, parted the sea, they passed across, Pharaoh's army was destroyed. They get out and in some point in there they, they are disobedient and God allows them to just wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. Now God was not pleased with them, that's why He allowed them to wander for 40 years. But even during that 40 years, He still took care of them. He still protected them. They had a cloud over them by day. They had a pillar of fire by night that led them. They had food every day. And since they were just wandering around, they didn't have time to plant crops and let it grow. The food just appeared on the ground every morning, fresh. They had water, fresh water to drink. When they complained about the manna, God allowed them to have meat to eat. Their shoes never wore out. Forty years and their shoes never wore out. This is people that were not pleasing to God, but they were His people and He still cared about them. Even though they were in a time of judgment and God had said that these people will never see the promised land because of their disobedience, God still cared for them. He knew what the people would do when Isaiah's writing. He knew what they would do. He knew how they would react to events. Isaiah told the people in his prophecy, you're going to be taken captive, and you're going to be there for this period of time. This man named Cyrus is going to come along. He's going to allow you to be returned back to your home country, but you're not going to want to because you're going to say, eh, we'll just stay here. We're kind of comfortable. We've been here all this time. We'll just stay. He even knew the attitude that they would have. That's how accurate... God is in knowing your future. He knows not only the events, He knows what your attitude and reaction will be to the events. And with that said, do you believe that God knows your future? And if the answer is yes, why wouldn't you trust Him? And some would say, well, since God knows the future, it just doesn't matter what I do. It's all mapped out. Here's the difference. That's not true. It does matter what you do. Because just like the Israelites in captivity, we have a choice whether to stay in bondage or go free. When God told Cyrus, and Cyrus read the word that said, let these people go back and build their temple and rebuild the, the city of Jerusalem, there were many of the people that said, but this is all we've ever known. We'll just stay here. We've got homes. We've got businesses. And life's not that bad, even though we're in captivity. So we'll just stay. They had a choice. Deliverance was there. The plan for them to, to have salvation and return to what God wanted them was there. The choice was theirs. God did not drive them out of captivity. He made a way for escape, and the choice to leave was completely theirs. God has provided us today a plan of salvation. 
We can be saved. We can be forgiven. We can be regenerated. We can be rebuilt. We can be renewed. But it's our choice as to whether or not we do it. God will not force us. He will not yank you up from your seat and drive you to the altar to your knees and make you repent. But He'll offer it. And the choice is ours. And there's people that say, well, if God loves us and He's really a loving God, He will send us to hell. God's not going to send anyone to hell. The choice is ours. We have a choice that is placed before us. We can have deliverance or we can have bondage. We can have heaven or we can have hell. And it's up to us as to which one we receive. See, the nice thing that, that the promise is that God wants what is best for us. But He won't force us into what is best for us. Jeremiah 29 and 11 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God knows what's in our future. He has plans for you. He has plans to prosper you. Plans not to harm you. Plans to give you hope. But if you choose not to follow Him, that's your choice. And there are a lot of people that have that opportunity. There are a lot of people that have chosen to follow after God and that at some point chosen to walk away. And God will allow us to do that. Isaiah used the example in verses 1 through 3 of darkness and light. And he used it to demonstrate the vast difference between choosing God and choosing our own way. That they were so different that it was as different as, as black and white and as different as darkness and night. And we have to look at the concept of that day of what the, the culture of darkness and light meant for them. At nightfall in that time, when a door of the home was secured, there was an oil lamp that was lit. And the only thing that would stop a person from having an oil lamp in their home would be if they were just in total abject poverty, if there was no way that they could afford a lamp and oil. Other than that, everyone had a lamp that they lit when they locked their home up for the night. And they kept that lamp burning throughout the night. People of that day would not even consider sleeping in the dark, not pray the boogeyman or anything like that. Well, almost. There was great fear and dread associated with the hours of darkness. The, the, there was wild animals. That was one thing they knew for sure. There were dangerous people out there. That was one thing they knew for sure. But they also thought that there was evil omens and spirits that inhabited the nighttime. And because of that, they kept their lamps lit at night. So when Isaiah spoke about darkness and light, the people understood that. They understood that the darkness was representative of evil and light was something that drove the darkness away. Isaiah, in his writings about the light, he writes about a light that rises over Jerusalem. He says it's the divine glory of the Lord. Remember in the book of Exodus, back what we were talking about a while ago, when the people... We're traveling from Egypt to the, the promised land. They're wandering around for 40 years. There was that pillar of light. That light served as a beacon to guide them. Just as the cloud did during the day, that light took them in the direction they were supposed to go. 
Why? It was God's way of illuminating their path. And there's a lot of references in the, especially in the Old Testament, about a light to our, how God is a light to our feet. A light to our path. In Isaiah's writings, it's symbolic of a God shines like a sun over the city. And the sun gives off light and causes the city to radiate because of this light. And guess who sees it? All the nations around them. All the people that mocked and scorned them when they were taken to captivity by the Babylonians, now that light shines on the city. They reflect that light and the people look around and they go, wow, they've been restored. That's not what we saw before. Something has happened. John 8 and 12. When Jesus spoke again, this is in the New Testament, when Jesus spoke again to the people, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When Jesus was on earth, He was that light. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, this is Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. When Jesus left, then all of a sudden we became the light of the world. We are not the source of the light because He is the source of the light, but we are a reflection of that light. And that's what we are called to be. And again, it shows the difference between darkness and light because once you put a light in a dark room, it's no longer dark. And it kind of points out specifically that there is a separation. There are a lot of people that like to take good and bad and kind of mix it up and say that it's gray. And in these these places that even as Isaiah was writing, as Jesus spoke in the New Testament, it tells us that there is no gray. There is darkness and there is light. You say, well, are you sure about that? I'm pretty sure. If you go back to Isaiah, you see that the, the glory of the Lord was the light that caused the city to shine on those around it. Likewise, when we follow after the light of life, Jesus that was spoken of in John 8 and 12, His light shines on us. We become a reflection. And look what Paul wrote in Ephesians 5 and 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. And again, here's that separation. You were once darkness, now you are light. Live as children of light. That's what we are supposed to be in this world. We are supposed to be a, a light, a reflection of the love of God so that people around us will see the goodness of God. Not so they see our goodness, but they see the goodness of God. Paul also wrote that there was, a, again, another description of light and darkness and a description of the separation in 2 Corinthians 6 and 14. He said, what fellowship can light have with darkness? And the answer to that, of course, is none. 
Light and darkness cannot coexist. And Isaiah is writing about this to the people. He is so excited about it. He's saying, wake up. Wake up. There is something good that's going to happen. You've been in captivity for all of these years. And keep in mind, they haven't even been taken captive yet. All of this is prophetic. You're going to be taken captive, but that's not the end of it. You will live in captivity, but there will be a time that will come, and when that happens, wake up. Return to where God wants you to be. Become that light so that everyone around will see and say, God has restored you. If we apply Isaiah's writings to a time that's about 700 years after he wrote it, when Jesus came to earth, he became that light that would overcome the darkness of the world. And because of that light, all of a sudden there was a hope of renewal and rebuilding of broken lives. That brokenness that came from sin was all of a sudden taken away by what happened on the cross. Just as the Israelites were offered deliverance from bondage to the Babylonians, along with the hope of, of rebuilding, renewing, and restoration, we have that same hope today. No matter how far into bondage you might have fallen, be assured that there is hope through the redemption on the cross of rebuilding, renewing, and restoration. I want to go to Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. Keep in mind, this is the Old Testament. This is prophetic of Isaiah. But as we read it, think about how this might apply to us today. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Many Bible commentators have identified Isaiah as the anointed person speaking here back in verse 1. And while it is true that he was speaking prophetically and he was anointed to write these words, it's also linked to other places in Isaiah that it it shows the anointed to be Jesus Christ. And believe, truly, Jesus the Messiah was anointed in His ministry. But I believe not only did it, it speak of Isaiah as being the anointed one speaking to His people of His day, and to Jesus who came as the ultimate anointed one, I believe it speaks to us today. Because we are called to proclaim the good news to those that don't, hear, don't know it. The good news in the New Testament being the gospel. And that gospel will bind the brokenhearted. Now here's, here's an interesting thing. Most likely when Isaiah was writing this chapter, 
he had an idea in mind of something that he was familiar with. And it was something referred to as the year of Jubilee. The word freedom that's used in Isaiah 61 and 1 is a technical term that's used in the Old Testament to describe the freedom given in that year of Jubilee or the Jubilee year. And so somebody might ask, well, what's the year of Jubilee? And I would say, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. The year of Jubilee was something that God told the Israelites to observe every 50 years. Every 50 years, freedom was given to all slaves. They were to return all land if it had been sold to its original family owner. They weren't to plant fields that year, every 50 years. And there were certain things that had to happen every 50 years. And the reason was that if the poor, they would be less likely to be oppressed by the rich. And the thought that if a poor person had sold their property to pay debts, eventually they would receive it back. Now, the actual selling of property was most likely more a lease that had a limit of 50 years. It wasn't really selling it and then all of a sudden I just go take it back or the government comes and takes it back. We won't go there. Also, if a poor person had indentured himself or sold himself into slavery to pay their debts, at the end of 50 years or every 50 years, all of those people were freed. Any foreign people that were taken captive as prisoners and kept as slaves, every 50 years they were freed. Right. Exactly. That's exactly. Yeah, if, if you died in the meantime and your children became slaves, then every 50 years, everyone became free. So there was some significance here. But here's something that's interesting. There is no record in the Old Testament of the year of Jubilee ever being observed. at least from everything I read and everything that I read of people that have researched it. I'm not saying they never did, but there's no record in the Old Testament of it being observed. However, in Isaiah's writings, this is probably what he had in mind. And even if if they never observed it literally, the promise was fulfilled when Jesus the Messiah came and inaugurated this spiritual year of Jubilee. Because at that point, People were freed. They were freed from their bondage. They were, regardless of how they got there, it didn't matter how they got there, they were free. The debt that they owed, the debt of sin that we had, was all of a sudden paid for by somebody else. And it's, it's this spiritual year of Jubilee that was, that was brought into play by Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, everything has changed. The people that are in bondage are free. The debts that we owe have been paid by someone else. And it's a clean slate. In Jesus' early ministry, he was in a temple in Nazareth, and he actually read from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he told the people that these words were being fulfilled in him. In fact, it's found in Luke 4 and 18. And Jesus got up and he read this and he said, by the way, this is talking about me. 
which didn't make some people very happy. But look what he was saying. He is saying, here's what will be fulfilled with me coming to earth. There is good news for the poor. Not necessarily those in poverty only, but those that are humble, those that are poor in spirit. There is good news. I'm here to set free those that are in bondage. I'm here to provide light for those that are in darkness. I am here to heal the brokenhearted. I am here to heal blinded eyes. I am here to release the oppressed from their oppression. And all of those things that Isaiah wrote about, Jesus fulfilled. And he stood up and said, this is all about me. And it was. The same promises that were given to the Israelites in verses 2 and 3 are for us today. Absolutely without question, they are for me. They are for you. But here's the thing. Just like the people of that day, there was a choice. And each of us has a choice today. We can say, I'm content where I am. Even though I'm in bondage, it's really not that bad, so I'll just stay here. Or we can say, I want what God has for me. I know there's something better, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out of this bondage and take what God has planned in my life. And that choice is yours. The promises that Isaiah spoke of. He said, your mourning, your grief, your spirit of despair will be replaced with comfort, gladness, and a garment of praise. And I am here today to tell you that your mourning, your grief, and your spirit of despair can be, and God will replace it with a spirit of comfort, gladness, and a garment of praise. If you choose to step out of the bondage. He said that a crown of beauty would replace the ashes on their head. And we talked a couple weeks ago, I think, about sackcloth and ashes, of, of how they were so hypocritical in their fasting that they part of the sackcloth and ashes, they'd throw ashes up and, and they'd fall down on their head to show that they were in mourning. And what Isaiah is saying here, that there won't be any more ashes on your head. There won't be any more mourning. But instead, there'll be this crown of beauty that is placed on you because now all of a sudden you've been restored to where God wants you to be. We don't have to live the way we've always lived. You don't have to live the life that you have always lived. If you look at your life and you say, this is just cannot be where I'm supposed to be in my life, you don't have to stay there. No matter what you've done, God wants to renew your life. You say, well, you don't know what I've done. doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. When God looks at, at sin, He looks at it all the same. Whether you have stolen a pack of baseball cards when you were 10 years old, from the convenience store, or whether you killed someone. It's all sin. 
And if God can forgive one, He can forgive the other. So don't, don't let the devil try to tell you that you have just gone too far and God can't forgive you. The reason that Isaiah was writing any of this stuff that we're reading today is because the people had fallen so far into sin and idolatry that God allowed their enemies to come in and completely take them captive and carry them away. They had gone way, way out of line. And God still had a promise for them. They lived 70 years in captivity. And God still restored them. So don't let the devil try to tell you that there is no hope. There is always hope. Maybe you think that you have completely destroyed your life and it's beyond repair. I assure you that God can rebuild your life. If you go back to Jeremiah 29 and 11, it said, I know the plans I have for you. I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Whether you see them or whether you don't, I still know what they are. And no matter where you find yourself this morning, no matter where you are in your walk with God, God is still speaking to you today and He says, I have plans for you. But I don't know what I can do. Don't worry about it. God has plans for you. He has plans to prosper you and not to harm you. God is not some God that's sitting up in heaven on His throne with a big stick waiting for you to mess up so He can whack you in the head. That's not the God we serve. He's a loving God. And He gives us a choice. We can choose to live for Him or we can choose to live for ourselves. But the choice is ours. And God is saying, I have plans for you. If you choose that way, I've got plans for you, Brother Don. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's only at that's a good point. It's only at the point where we have killed off this old sinful man and we have completely rejected that. That God takes over, and when He takes over in our life and delivers us, all of a sudden we become that city with the reflection of light to all those that are around us. I'm not preaching new philosophy here. This is, this is Bible. It's not that we become the light. We're just a reflection of His light. I believe that the writings of Isaiah prophetically are a call for us today to proclaim the good news of the gospel. The one thing we know for sure, there are plenty of people out there that need to hear it. And I will tell you that no matter how spiritually ugly or weak you might feel, verse 3 of, Jeremiah, of Isaiah in the chapter we're reading, regardless where you think you might be, 
I believe through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, our lives can become like that mighty oak tree that Isaiah wrote about. They will be called oaks of righteousness. Why did he use the term oak? Because it was symbolic of a strong tree. Something that was sturdy. Something that didn't bend when the wind blew it. The wind came and, and went and the oak tree still stood. And he's saying, God wants to make you into something strong. No matter how weak you feel. Yes, you've been in bondage and you haven't been your own people and you haven't had control over your own life, but now there's an opportunity that you can walk out of this bondage and I will make you a light that will shine to all those around you and I will make you strong like this mighty oak tree. A life that doesn't speak of our righteousness, but the righteousness of God. A life that is powerful, not through our own abilities, but powerful in the Spirit. And a life that is not for our own glory, but for the display of God's splendor. That's what He wants us to become. And I believe when all of this happens, our lives are not only renewed and restored and rebuilt, I believe they're transformed. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's not just a, a whitewashed outside with the same old inside. It's a total transformation. When God transforms our sinful life, we are as different from where we were to where we are as a butterfly is from the caterpillar that it once was. How many remember in school when you did the whole take a caterpillar, put it in a jar with a stick, and it would become a cocoon, and when it came out, it would be a butterfly? God doesn't just come down and glue wings on the caterpillar. And that's too many times what we as Christians try to think that a changed life is. That we just glue wings on the caterpillar. And that's not it at all. It's a total transformation. That, that caterpillar becomes a cocoon, and when it emerges from that cocoon, it is a total different creation. Turn the monitors off, please. A whole new creation. And I believe that when we are transformed, that we become a new creation. There are too many people today in religion that have put all the emphasis on, for, on the outside. And they've made all of the, the importance about the outside. And, and that's not true. It's a transformation that starts from the inside and comes to the outside. We don't, we don't work on the outside and hope that it gets in. Look what Paul said in Romans 12 and 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are we transformed? By the renewing of our mind. 
We're not transformed by sitting somebody down and say, okay, these are the rules. You have to do this, this, and this. And you have to comb your hair this way. And you have to wear these kind of shoes and this kind of shirt. No, that's not what he was saying. He's saying it's a renewal of your mind. And when your mind is renewed, you become a new creature. Why? Because it was really on the inside. And it's what was in your heart. That's right. It's our mind that God transforms. Our life is transformed by the renewing of our mind. When that happens, the outward part will take care of itself. And if you have never asked God to begin that transformation, to begin that rebuilding and renewal in your life, why not ask Him today? Maybe you've begun that process and and you just aren't where you'd like to be. Then ask Him to help you continue in that process. Ask Him to help you continue in that renewal, in that regeneration. Philippians 1 and 6. Being confident of this, He that began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If He began a good work in you, He's able to complete it. If God provided a way of escape for the people of Israel from Babylon, it was a complete escape. It was completely all the way back to the city and a rebuilding of the temple in the city. It wasn't just you get out of town and you're on your own. And if you feel like you have already arrived at perfection, then I can't really help you. But I will say I I would have thought I had to get to heaven before I met Jesus Christ. We just haven't gotten there yet. But we're on the way. And wherever you are in your walk with God, would you ask Him today to take you to that high point in your walk with Him? And that's a place that only He can take you. It's a place of rebuilding a place of renewal, and a place of transformation into a brand new creature. God bless you.